Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler on Friday, June 23rd here back in New York City. Uh, joining me from Los Angeles are Elaine Lowe and a new Academy board member, Richard Rushfield. Richard, do I have that right? The Academy finally come to their senses and uh, put you on the board or something? I'm, I'm holding out till they uh, make me at least vice president uh, <laughs> or, or, or chief brand officer. <laughs> Maybe chief communications officer. That'd be interesting, huh? That sounds that sounds like real work, though. <laughs> Good point. And Elaine, of course, uh, from Los Angeles. Elaine, how many tickets have you already bought for the Zendaya tennis movie in September? I have to know already. Wait, what's Zendaya tennis movie? Oh, my God. Lane, you are I've, you are okay, in my right, in my okay. defense uh, so in my this defense is a big uh, all right hold on here. <laughs> i've been on the picket lines i've i've been at the rallies i've had a lot else on my mind also speaking of tennis breakpoint the second half of that season is out on netflix now so i'll be watching some real tennis but i do want to hear about this zendaya tennis movie wow okay all right it's luca guadagnino directing uh love triangle look tennis. you got me at tennis sean that's all I know. you had to I, say I, this is what's shocking all right well now you have <laughs> i put the link in the wake up newsletter on uh tuesday or whatever it was this week so it's called challengers coming out in theaters in mid-september so probably don't want to bring mom to this one just fyi but <laughs> <laughs> not a book club two vibe i'm not guessing. a book club two vibe uh, no or the kids for that matter so this will be a mom's night out for sure uh but looks really good if i'm in la at that time elaine you and i will go together and have a movie experience is that, is that where we on all right good <laughs> remember to of course follow the ankler on all the uh social platforms at the ankler and subscribe to the ankler at the to get the full suite of newsletters and podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, just hit the uh, subscribe or follow button on whatever podcast app, device, uh, listening area of choice that you uh, like to listen to your podcasts on. And of course, sign up for the Strike Guys newsletter, totally free at strikegeist.com for all of Elaine's daily missives from the front lines of the WGA picket lines, uh, the latest with SAG-AFTRA, the Hollywood executive suites, uh, et cetera, et cetera. She does a daily evening newsletter. Again, strikegeist.com totally free and uh richard you have to flip your strike calendar date up to 53 days now i think we're 53 is that right elaine yep we are on day 53 on day 51 just two days ago we had uh, an enormous rally out at the la brea tar pits it seemed like it yeah uh it's what i guess was there a head count or was there, I, I didn't even uh, okay any, any I, estimates or listen no? i'm not the best at crowd estimation i think that's actually <laughs> richard's uh wheelhouse there but it oh. looked to me like there were at least a thousand people on the lawn i know the hollywood reporter had it pegged at five thousand because there were a lot of people they started this march right over at uh Pan Pacific Park in the Fairfax neighborhood of L.A. And then they marched like two miles over to the La Brea Tar Pits, where then they had a bunch of speakers and things really trying to rally the troops, get uh, get get sentiment back up, especially now that we're hitting the, the 50 some day mark of the strike. There's probably a comment about writers doing two miles of exercise somewhere, but I'm just not going to take it, Elaine. <laughs> just going to take the high road here. Um, and this was to mark the essentially that was the 51st day of you know the striker. Was there a particular impetus behind the timing here, or just kind of the latest in solidarity and, and kind of keeping the spirits up? Yeah, I think it's I think it's the latest in keeping the spirits up. You had a lot of similar speakers to the last rally that was downtown a couple of weeks before that. You had a SAG uh, chief negotiator and exec director, um, Duncan Crabtree Ireland, who had incidentally just come from talking to the AMPTP up in Sherman Oaks before he went to the rally, but no indications there of what else was happening. Um, and then obviously the famed Hollywood Teamsters boss, Lindsay Doherty, who is like, a, you know, she's it's she's been shining. This is her moment and really fired up everybody at the end. 
um, standing outside of the La Brea tar pits, notably where many a fossil is, uh, calling for the AMPTP to be made, quote, fucking extinct. Uh, so that gave you a little hint. Is that, at sort of is that the, an official demand? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's in the next uh, contract proposals. <laughs> uh, but yeah, lots of a big turnout, um, lots of different uh, unions as well, like LAUNA, which is the um, Laborers International Union of North America, um, and also like the American Federation of Musicians. So really trying to show the cross-union solidarity there of, uh, of you know, basically like we're here for you and, and the writers were promising, like we'll be there for you when you go on strike, which I think will be interesting to see bear out should it come to that. And Richard, on your end, any observations? I mean, certainly the big the lead of the week there, but some other things going on uh, in Strikeland as well. I mean, the, the the big thing is holding holding the breath to wait to see what comes to SAG, just like it was with with the DGA. That's kind of the final um, turning point of how this will go. And there's no there's there's nothing else uh, sort of looming on the horizon that could be the sort of game changer other than a game of attrition here. What do you think the odds are, Richard, of there being an extension past the June 30th date for SAG? Because we're literally a week out right now. And Richard, you and I have been talking about this. Like, I'm I'm like, I'm not going to go anywhere for the 4th of July weekend in case they start striking here. And you're like, ah, go ahead and and, and make some plans. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, deals often come together in the last three hours. So it's uh, everybody will say, no, 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 we're, we're a million miles apart. It's irreconcilable. It's uh, impossible. You can't talk to these people. And then suddenly at 1030 at night, uh, everybody's talking and. 90 minutes later, you have a deal. Um, but uh, I think uh, for myself and uh, trying to read the news, it's very hard to predict what SAG will do and, and how SAG works. It's it's such a huge, sprawling thing and, and with with warring factions that have been at each other's throat for 20 years now. And um, what will come out of that, uh, I I don't have a good handle on. And I haven't, I haven't really seen anyone else have a good handle on. So we hold our breath and wait. And a much more sprawling membership to represent, too. When you're looking at the WGA, it's 11,500 writers. SAG represents over 160,000 actors and performers. So it's a much broader demographic. Yeah, of whom, you know, there can't be more than 10, 15,000 that make their full-time living um, off acting. So you have you have 130,000 people or something that for whom this is, this is a... Uh, kind of a side project or so the question is that does that mean they're more likely to say uh oh, what the heck we're only making a little money let's go strike or that they're just disengaged that they're largely disengaged people who say don't you know this pays for my summer vacation every year why are you why are you causing me trouble so and i don't know the answer to that so Lance, the first day of the strike would be a Saturday, you know, July 1st, right? I guess that's the way that would shake out. You know, I, I guess so. But I, I'm assuming the actual picketing would start on July 3rd, which seems well, that's... like a very bizarre <laughs> time right yeah. before the July 4th weekend. I imagine a lot of people are going to be out. Uh, so, like, yeah, I, I, that's that's the thing. That's kind of a big question mark, right? Of like, right. what would the what would the vibe be? How how many numbers would you be able to get? Like, you're gonna picket empty offices or off empty sound, and no one's at work. You know, it's a little. I mean, whatever. It's the calendar. It is what it is. You can certainly do that, but it's a, not a great. Where the writers, you know, March uh, May second were that was a I think a Tuesday or a Wednesday, so it was a full day of work for everybody. It was you know you were there on the on the lines yourself, a lot of energy. We're doing it on. 
a Saturday or a Sunday or a Monday, July 3rd, uh, you know, would be interesting. So I could see that scenario of an extension going to the eighth or something like that, you know, just for that reason alone, and just optics, like, yeah. you know, a, a bit of that, but, or Tom Cruise could just will it into existence. Uh, so we could do one more week of press tour for mission impossible seven. Cause uh, there's a strike July 1st, his world tour comes to an abrupt end. Um, Real quick, which That's is right. When does that movie come out? Jack comes out on uh July 12th. But boy, he's he's banked a lot of publicity in advance of that. I hear I well, they had the Rome premiere this week. They have done interviews and red carpets, and uh, you know, we get pictures from a uh a different premiere and 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 appearances. And so I feel like if he if he misses that last week of PR, like they got uh, plenty of plenty of public Tom Cruise in the bank. Right now. You, you want to tell Tom Cruise that Richard be my guest. Uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> he still has Australia. He's got Australia on, I think, July 3rd. He's got New York here on Monday, the 10th. Uh, things I'm sure he would not want to miss out on. He This is what he this is the only you know, he's this is a uh, Groundhog's Day, Richard. This is the only time of year he comes out is when the movie comes out <laughs> and then you don't see him again until the next movie comes out. So if he misses out on so part seven, part two next year. That isn't, I mean, you won't see him again until that, you know, so this is it for him. So, uh, you know, anyway, we'll, we'll see how that goes. And then the press tours for everything else would be, you know, uh, pushed off or anything from Barbie to Oppenheimer to, you know, a lot, a lot of big titles coming out, uh, in July as well. So Lane though, the, uh, some, a couple pieces in uh, business around town this week that I'm curious to hear if they were brought up on the strike lines this week. Uh, number one, this Big Taylor Sheridan profile in the Hollywood Reporter uh, seems to have gotten some chatter. What was uh, your take on it? And was anybody talking about it this week? Yeah, he's become public enemy of the week, right? Uh, with his, and this was a, a cover interview that he did for the Hollywood Reporter because he was named TV producer of the year, obviously for his work on Yellowstone and the mini spinoffs. What is it? Uh, 1923, 1883. And yeah, a few, the, yeah, and, uh, the, the, the yeah. years confuse me, but yes, all of the, the, the Yellowstone cinematic universe. Taylor Sheridan and, universe, yeah. And uh, and and in it, he had said some things that were not quite well received by other writers. I mean, as we all know, Taylor uh, does not really have a, a writer's room. He kind of does everything himself, um, kind of like how Mike White does on White Lotus. Um, and he said, quote, the freedom of the artist to create must be unfettered. Uh, quote, if they tell me you're going to have to write a check for $540,000 to four people to sit in a room that you never have to meet, then that's between the studio and the guild. But if I have to check in creatively with others for a story I've wholly built in my brain, that would probably be the end of me telling TV stories, which ruffled a lot of feathers with writers who are with the WGA now rallying for staffing minimums in writers rooms. And he's essentially saying, like, if you, you know, if you have to put me in a room and pay all these other people, fine, but I don't want to actually have creative input fine, fine like with him it's actually them. illegal but but neither here nor there it's 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 a wild west richard come on there's no rules <laughs> so i mean aside aside from the fact that like there's the the creative part of that right where a lot of writers are chiming in to say hey tv is a collaborative medium it's not like an uh a singular you know it's like not like you're an alter or Autour, one of those, auteur, auteur, it's yes, one of those yeah. words that I like read. And then I'm just like, have I ever said this word out loud before? Um, <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also like when it comes to staffing minimums, sort of for a lot of people feels like he's undermining the very thing that they're currently fighting for. Now, of course, whether you agree with whether that should be something they're fighting for is a completely different matter. And yeah. I would say that I, I would say from, from my conversations, that is a, that is the one point um, on negotiations that is a, big divide within 
within the, the WGA. There are mixed feelings uh, within the membership about uh, about whether that's that's something that that they should be striking for those quotas. Yeah. And he also, I think, said he didn't didn't know who the script coordinator or somebody was on his series. Made a quip along those lines as well, which uh, you know. Yeah, and then the, someone uh, on someone on Twitter actually said, "I'm actually the person in the article for <laughs> something <laughs> I saw as well," which I was like, "Oh man!" <laughs> but what? But what? What is the scenario though? Like that he would be forced to have a writing room and that he would uh, bounce his his plot for the new episode off him, and that his his employees, the writers who work for him, would shoot it down and say no. Taylor, you're not allowed to have a bear storm onto the ranch. We we veto it. Like, is 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 that the? No, no, he just doesn't want to pay five hundred forty thousand. You know, it's budget. But he, when he when he talks about my creative my creative freedom being uh, being being restricted here, like what what? That's true. That's true. Because you hear about writers' rooms where the showrunner winds up rewriting everything at the end anyway, right? So not inconceivable. But in this piece also, he said, you know, she described how he has this room that he goes into with the desk. And this is where he does it. He has a script, famously a script in eight hours. And, you know, so it's more of that process. I think he's talking about maintaining versus, you know, any of, the, any of those other things. But uh, which, you know, look, it's so Mike White, says, as you say, Elaine does a similar thing, but is far less vocal about it. I was um, going to say he talks a lot less about it, which I yeah, think, you don't hear about <laughs> too, all the difference here. They're not the only two. There are other people who certainly have done this or do this. Craig, um, Craig Mason uh, is the other one. That, right. Uh, so, yep. Yeah. Who's a uh, Chernobyl and uh, certainly the last of us. So and a lot of big, big names out there doing uh, a lot of Emmy nominated series who are kind of uh solo artist. So I will say I put out a little call yesterday and I was just like, what do you guys think in the newsletter? And I've never gotten so much mail about anything before <laughs> than this Taylor Sheridan thing. Uh, yeah. So I'll be, I'll be republishing some of that in today's newsletter. Probably. There you go. Strikeguys.com. Check it all out. Um, Richard, the other story uh, among showrunners this week, someone else who's a, a singular entity is uh, Ryan Murphy or certainly a, a brand name out there who's leaving his Netflix deal. How much do you think Bob Iger is going to pay uh, Ryan Murphy? But how many zeros are uh, would be in his new deal at Disney? I, I think he's probably doing it for scale just because he loves the loves oh, the right. art form. I, I, I forgot. It's silly. For me. the love I, of the work. That's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Elaine, uh, was Ryan Murphy's name uh, mentioned? There's also some other things about crossing uh, picket lines or something with him this week. I didn't quite follow the yeah, headline on so it. He's still got some shows in production and that's also raised some hackles. But I think when it comes to the actual deal, a lot less chatter about that on the picket lines this week, people were more up in arms about the Taylor Sheridan profile. And obviously okay. there was the big rally to think about on Wednesday. Um, but it, this Ryan Murphy news really isn't that much of a surprise. I feel like we've been hearing rumblings of this, at least I have for the last year. And everyone knows he and Dana Walden over at Disney are close and have had a really productive, creative partnership. Yeah. I mean, Disney, whether Fox was his home before, you know, Netflix. So uh, yeah. and then Dana, where Dana was certainly running the show there on writer Twitter on WJ Twitter. There were a bunch of people who took immediate exception to um uh, to to the deal and the announcement they're coming in the middle the middle of the strike and uh, implied he shouldn't shouldn't be negotiating or making a deal uh, during the sh during a strike and to which others responded he's, he's talking about his producing his, his producing deal and he he has and the WGA has no claims on cannot tell people not to make not to make deals in their other roles there so uh, those. Objections seem to have been champed down pretty quickly, but there was an immediate kind of uh, uproar for for a bit there. Yeah. 
Well, it's also in a sense that, you know, a lot of studios are not paying producers who have deals now, Richard, uh, and you're going to now pay this guy who, 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 as you say, cannot write anything once you start this deal. Uh, it's not like he signs a deal and he's going, oh, here's my first show. You know, he'll be, you'll be paying someone to sit on the sidelines as much as you're not paying other uh, showrunners that you've cut the deals off for. So the optics on that, I think, you know, if that were, I mean, look, there's no deal with Disney, nothing's been signed, you know, the, to the point there is, you know, this is all kind of speculation at this point, but that optic, as you say, point out, Richard, would be a little odd, uh, not against the guild rules, as you say, but, um, uh, but again, you know, let's kind of pivot on to the next thing here. Uh, do you want to start with Zaslav or Iger? What, oh, goodness. First of all, does it seem like shell shock was like six months ago at this point? Like <laughs> Jeff, with Jeff shell, I'm like, <laughs> that seems so long ago to me. Even Christine McCarthy. I'm like, it seems like, oh, that was a month ago. I'm like, no, that was literally last week. Yeah. <laughs> shell didn't stay in the headlines for very long, did he? No, no, that was a, not even a whole week cycle. That was interesting because usually when, when a, uh, executive is ousted Howard's favorite thing is to show its uh toughness by by uh piling on to someone who's just lost all their power and uh and usually when someone is ousted the whole town comes for it with stories about we always hated him we, we always knew him yeah we always, we always knew, knew all this we always knew and we always and yeah. there's far worse and and it's about time someone someone did something about this loser yeah. uh but uh but jeff sell seemed uh, there were a couple articles, but mostly avoided that, and the world just turned the page pretty quickly. Well, part of it was nobody seemed to say, I knew this all along about him, right? The, the Hollywood reporter suggested that. Uh, there were a couple of trickles. Nothing else came out of it. No one else came forward saying I had an affair with him or anything like that, certainly. So, um, in a, you know, this wasn't a anywhere near a you know less moon bed situation or, you know those those lines it right, was just right. a, a singular affair but um so but it has been jeff you know uh his whatever pr tactic was just said didn't say much and you know that wasn't much of a protest and went on went on his way so uh but it's interesting how the dif- different uh styles there but uh but the executives who are still fully in power um Bob Iger and David Zazov. I guess we had a little bit of uh, debate, but conversation. Uh, Elaine, who had the who had the worst week? I guess was a, a conversation that started. Um, or Richard, I'm going to start off with you. You wrote a top ten. You're an old fashioned Letterman top ten list. Bob Iger's Disney headaches, pretty much in the last quarter. I, I, I used to say, uh, you know, Disney has has problems in areas where companies don't have areas, uh, which which was was sort of a strength, but. Now it has problems in all those areas. Uh, it it feels like so it's 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 a real uh, pile of headaches uh, going on for them right now. And and I just you know I was I was looking at them all and just wondering like do, do you think Iger is uh, regretting this this return here? He because the, the the problem is there's no easy fix for any of them. And I I, I went back I, I I I reread the part of his biography about when when he uh, his his memoir about when he took over Disney and he saw animation was kind of in a doldrums then they hadn't had a big hit for a while it, some movies did okay a lot of movies didn't do did, did less than that and his fix was that was to that was let's buy Pixar he didn't he didn't really he didn't have a solution for how to fix Disney animation but but he said here's his other company they could buy and well, you can't do that now. Right. That's not a lever that's going to, yeah, he's not going to buy illumination, uh, you know, so yeah, that's not an option. Exactly. So it's, it, there's not a clear path out of it. And Lucas is in a, uh, Star Wars is in an extended time off here. Marvel's, Marvel is, is doing kind of okay, but not, 
they, they haven't had a had a big breakout for a while. The the parks are a continuing sort of headache of expense and and uh well they're making money i mean the parks are but that's not you know that's no, that's nothing to do with his return by any means richard it's like that's the one thing he does have a, you know, still pulling cash at this point but it's uh but there is you know there are to your point increased ride costs and things like that and raising prices is something they're very sensitive about and that's not a lever they can really pull on that shapek was very happy to do so that's yeah that's true and uh disney plus lost lost uh subscribers and had a down quarter and there's not they pulled a lot of shows off and they, and they canceled a lot of shows that, that they were planning on. And, you know, maybe those were all good decisions, but none of those makes moves the needle upwards for it. It's like they, they might, they might stop the bleeding, but it's not a, uh, right. not, not attaching a new limb. So if there is a fix to turn them around, um, it will take years to, to get there at the, at the, I mean, you're not going to, you're not, you're not going to have a great new, Star Wars movie premiering next month. It's 2025, I think, goes was the date, right? I think we got pushed back to. Yeah. So it's just it. It's a uh, it's a world of troubles, and to the extent that Iger has articulated a path out of it, it's just about cutting costs and say and 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 stopping the bleeding here and cutting costs, shutting down projects, and and uh, mining the catalog even deeper. So he must have mornings where he wakes up and. Uh, it says, you know, writing my World War II novel on a boat doesn't doesn't <laughs> seem like such a bad life. Is that strategy too different from Zaz's, though, when you look at it? I mean, both really comes down to these so-called synergies, right? Which basically just means cutting costs anywhere you can. And we saw what happened with TCM this week and the layoffs there and then the resulting outcry over TCM. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, is there really any broader strategy that you see with Zaz? On both of them, it starts with stopping the bleeding uh, to to the best they can, and I think it because it's a it's a smaller sort of more compact company without these giant divisions and all that. It's kind of a simpler problem. Like they need to hit TV shows, they need to hit movies, but it's uh, D- Disney is more entrenched in its IP, so so turning that around is a kind of bigger, slower, harder problem. Whereas uh, Warner's in theory could could have a couple films on the runway could turn out to be hits uh, tomorrow. You look at the start that the flash has gotten in at the box office, right? And there's sort of a, an effort to turn the ship around with DC on that side. Right. I mean, like what, what do you think those early figures say for the flash, Richard? I, I, I wrote about the, uh, the, the, the flash detectives uh, this, this week and all the people trying to come up with re- and there, there are more, reasons for the flash failure than there are stars in the sky out there it's because you know people are right about how there was no late night shows how people are tired of universes how because zaslav set the expectations too high and your analogy to the to the warren commission was 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 pretty apt there richard that was pretty good i will say (laughs) (laughs) to me it comes down to all those could be true but if they made a movie that people ever that people loved it would still been a hit but people didn't seem to love this movie for whatever i liked it so i I don't know what their problem is, but uh, <laughs> it got a B cinema score, which is a disaster for a super uh, hero movie. It's it, not good. So it's uh, in terms of like pointing fingers, it, it, it's kind of in a privileged position that this is a, a holdover movie. And and even if they hyped it too much or anything, like you can't fire the people in charge of this uh, 
well, they gave the director the new a new Batman movie, you know, Andy Machete. It's like, you know, he was giving the reins to a, a, a whatever, not a Matt Reeves universe Batman movie, but another Batman movie. So he got a, they gave him another job and an overall deal at, at Warner Brothers. So, yeah, well, maybe overseen by by by, by Gunn and Saffron. It will. Yeah, it, it will be it will be a different world. I, I, I don't know. There's a lot riding on 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 the Gunn and Saffron vision, and uh, we won't know how that turns out until uh, for a couple of years now. So. 2025 is the you know the first one so if it becomes a huge hit and people say this is this this is there's the kind of superhero movie i've been looking for david zaslov and warners and uh and all this are, are saved if it arrives like doa and nobody's interested then they have a really big problem yeah and i wrote about it earlier this week and on tuesday it was you know this isn't the end of the the dc issue here elaine in 2023 they have blue beetle coming out which is a $125 million movie without, again, name, I said in the newsletter, name me a person in this movie, you know, uh, and they, they have committed with that one that, that no, this isn't a holdover. This is this blue beetle will continue to be part of the new, (laughs) right. It's part of the narrative, whatever that is at this point, he's in the universe. He got his universe, which I'm sure will, you know, add 5 million to box office. Uh, you know, but that's a hundred, 125 million. That's got to, you know, clear 250 more, you know, globally, at least to make any semblance of, of business. And I, they, they do know. have an interesting angle on this that, that it is a, it is about a Latino family. Sure. No, it's, that doesn't get tested very often, but there's also nobody, you know, on the poster and it's, right. and it's blue beetle. I've never heard any of my fanboy friends mentioned Blue Beetle until this movie was on this. On the How many slate. fanboy so, friends do you have? <laughs> you, uh, does Elaine count as one or no? I guess that's maybe so. <laughs> have you picked your cinema, your Comic Con uh, costume yet? Or? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're, you're looking at it. Great T-shirt. As a total aside, it's like, what happens to Comic Con if the actors go on strike too? Well, and Marvel's not going this year. They announced. They've yeah. already said we're not going to Hall H. So there's there's already that. Uh, but that's a- they still have their Harley Quinn costumes and. Oh, yes, people, and... those tickets are bought. They're going. That That's a more of a social thing than anything else. But the question was, Chewbacca's wandering around. Oh, I'm sure. And many others. But yes, what do you go see all day? But uh, good news for actual comics. I guess the, the comic books will have a back in the spotlight. Good for them. But uh, Blue Beetle, right? Like from what we saw at CinemaCon, it looks engaging. But yeah, Sean, it's like, how how is it going to pull people in? Especially when you have something like The Flash, which had, which had such enormous awareness going in. And is already disappointing, right? And had Batman had two Batmans in it. I mean, they were not promoting. How many it. Batmans could you possibly ask for? Well, apparently not enough <laughs> for the Flash. That didn't bring any, you know, bring enough people in the door. So, Some, uh, but but I, I will say that exciting for me to see Michael Keaton again. I'm a big Michael Keaton fan. I sure love his work. Uh, but um, last time he played Batman, I think you know most of the audience were not alive yet. Uh, most of the current audience were not were not born. At that at that point, and someone else pointed out all these old Batman's. You know, Batman wears a mask, so <laughs> it, it's like you could put me inside that mask, and I'd look the same as uh, the same as George Clooney playing Batman. Now, there's a Comic Con costume I want to see. So George Clooney and I are often mistaken for I each mean, other. Yeah. It's true. It's, um, so yeah. Anyway, there's a lot of issues there, and a big price tag that it does have internationally. You know, the Latino factor may be a, a large factor, which in the U.S for sure and even uh, internationally may pull more we'll see and a latino family it's all about the yes, family right the hispanic latino demographic is usually the one that in the post exit polls is the largest for a lot of these uh superhero films so we shall see uh but 125 million is a large amount to climb um 
And then you have Aquaman, which is over, I think it was $205 million coming out in December with co-starring Amber Heard, or we'll see how much she's in the movie. Um, a movie that made, a, you know, did clear a billion dollars last time, but that was, you know, kind of when DC was hot coming off of Wonder Woman and, uh, you know, the Justice League movies. As if you think things are bad now, I guess is my point of like, it's not like the rest of the year has a lot of slam dunks in it. But Elaine, to your point about the similarity of businesses, you know, in terms of what Zaz is facing and Iger are facing, you know, you remove the theme parks, which again, are doing well and they're throwing off a lot of cash. So I don't worry about the theme parks. Right. And I don't know. That's (laughs) one thing Iger's probably not worrying about, you know, which is the CFO coming in. Uh, from the theme parks there, but um, we will see uh, how the new Splash Mountain, that's re- true, re- revamped Flash Splash Mountain turns out. You'll have to give us a review, Richard. Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> send us a photo for the newsletters. Uh, exactly, <laughs> hands up. But you know, but I wrote a bit about this today in the wake up. But just a lot of this, this secular issues. You know, they're both Disney outside of the theme parks and WBD or cable based company, cable bundle based companies, and faces a lot of the same issues of replacing that revenue. And Disney Iger has put out a goal or a stated goal of uh, by, you know, essentially October of 24, that Disney streaming will be profitable. He's raising the price at the end of the year again on Disney plus. So, you know, in terms of who has a plan here in streaming, that's, that's Iger's and, and look at max WBD streaming did hit a $50 million technically in the black uh, last quarter, you know, to get, to give a sense of how, how, how tenuous are the, like, Disney Plus was a uh, enormously successful launch, defied the conventional wisdom at the time that Netflix had won the streaming war and everyone should just license them whatever they had because there was no point getting into it. Um, Disney Plus became an enormous um, uh, success on the bank on the back of The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian was was an enormous success because they had Baby Yoda. So they had one little puppet in the Mandalorian that they that they didn't even know was going to be the center of the the show because they they didn't make any toys around it. And on the back of that one little baby, uh, what 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 species is Yoda? Uh, I don't know, but his name is actually Grogu, Richard. So. Oh, baby Grogu, uh, <laughs> whatever he is. On the back of that one little thing, you you got you got Disney Plus. Uh, into orbit so so they can make all the plans they want for uh pricing and everything else uh if they don't have their next baby yoda to back it up with then good luck okay although counterpoint richard as someone with two small children in the house uh the number of disney plus originals that we watch is far superseded by the number of times we've rewatched aladdin Mm. or any disney animated movie from the mid-90s uh, that they're still sort of catching up on. The same at my house, but but Grogu is what gets you in the door. Grogu, Richard, Grogu. <laughs> what gives the bump in subscribers and what gets gets people there and then Babysitter's Club or whatever is what keeps you there. Right. But what I'm saying is, in theory, too, like uh, children, right? It's like a, it's a, it's a renewable resource. There's always going to be small kids are out there, right? And and you're always going to want just a library of Bluey or whatever to 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 sustain them while you need five minutes to yourself. So very true. Um, and I added, I know for my own household, they have a great niche. I also know for my own household that my kids aren't going to be watching Disney plus forever mm. that the, my kids are at some someday going to be not kids. Is that what happens, Richard? That, have you been told <laughs> that Richard? Is that, yeah. yeah. Uh, so is my household going to be subscribing to Disney plus at that point? 
if they're big Marvel heads, maybe. You know, they watch, they turn into Star Wars and they pay for their own accounts. Uh, yeah, and it's not necessarily, again, the cancellation. It's just the stagnation of just that, okay, yeah, Elaine, you're going to keep your subscription. Richard, you're going to keep yours for the foreseeable future. I do not have one as in someone who doesn't have any children and doesn't really watch Star Wars. Um, but the question, Richard, that you alluded to earlier is where's the growth coming from? And that has plateaued in the U.S. for all these guys. At that point, you're left to raise prices, which is what Iger is going to do again uh, to, to find growth and, you know, raising prices to growth. You want to see how that worked out. Just ask the cable TV bundle, uh, you know, as to where that leads you. Um, and to that point, when you do, maybe the kid does turn 16. You're like, yeah, maybe we don't need Disney Plus anymore at $14 a month or whatever the price is where before it was like you're used to you got you got it at what seven or eight bucks you know so when that changes the the perception changes of your product as well although if you want to talk about max formerly hbo max i do that was uh, next on the desk please <laughs> we were talking about streaming services and we we're talking about Iger versus zaz i mean what do you make of hbo potentially licensing more of its stuff back to netflix who, whose bingo card was that on? We both, yeah, exactly. We both, we both written about. It. I'm going to ask you what you think of it, Elaine. I mean, surprise to me, right? Especially if you're looking to rebrand HBO Max as Max and say this is the the one to watch HBO on, except for all the shows whose library content we're also going to put on Netflix now. In terms of just consumer brand dilution, I think. I wonder if that's confusing for the consumer, right? Like not people like us who just sit around and nitpick obsessively about the business all day. Yeah, but the shows are still there. They're not exclusive. They're not leaving the platform. And that's one thing that I think is a lost in this is that they're like, oh, they're giving them to Netflix. I'm like, no, they'll still be on it. HBO is still, or Max is still the place to watch all the HBO. If someone wants to write you a check to also put it on their network, it's like. And the, the, these are shows that are not driving right. new customers to to max and to, right, we're talking about like the sopranos or something right something that's like not on the air anymore well no not not even that no we're talking it's insecure i mean according to vulture ballers is on there you know stuff that you know not the a, the a-list hits not sopranos sex in the city and sex in the city you can turn on e right now and it's on 24 hours a day i mean it's not like it's like oh they've never done this before sopranos was licensed to the a and e was, uh you know and you can go watch true blood on hulu right now uh, so this notion that this is some wild tactic that's going to, you know, kill the business is, I just don't know where this is, what evidence this is based on. Well, I mean, I'm not saying it's a wild tactic, but I will say in terms of, again, when you're looking at the consumer, right, which is where this matters, mm -hmm. if you're already a Netflix subscriber and Warner's is trying to get your money to pay for Max, which is one of the more expensive uh, streaming services oh, out same there. Same price as Netflix, but yes. Yeah, well, well, I guess if not, if you bump down to the end here of Netflix, but like, yeah, and uh, which I have done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're looking at it and you say, well, you know, maybe I don't need to watch all the latest HBO shows. Maybe I just wanted to watch X, Y, and Z. Maybe I want, you know, yeah, I don't know. It's a small and, and, number of people. I think, it, I don't know. I just, maybe, how many people? But, well, that? there's also the confusion, right? Of just like, oh, if I think I can get HBO on Netflix, which so much of it comes down to perception, right? If I think sure. I can get HBO on Netflix, why would I then go and shell out more for Max? Yeah, but you find out soon The Last of Us is not on there. The, you know, Euphoria is not on there. All the stuff that you're talking, you know, The White Lotus is not on there. Succession is not on. So, you know, I suppose so. If you are like a if you're like a single issue voter, basically, when it comes to streaming <laughs> services, right? Like if you're like, I'm only going to subscribe to Max because I really want to watch The Last of Us. Yeah. Right. As opposed to being like, no, if I'm going to shell out this much money and I have this many other streaming services, I want to make sure I'm getting a whole universe of, of, stuff of content that I can't right. get on something I'm already paying for. Right.
the person who isn't complaining about insecure being licensed is Issa Rae because she she gets another big check from something that would have just been sitting in a library uh, on 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 the back catalog of Max, and and now it's a new it's syndication. It's literally syndication. It's been done for you know forty years here. I don't just know. like there there were howls of protest when uh, they licensed Westworld uh last year right uh, avod yeah none of them came from the nolans who suddenly got a got a giant new check for that i think this underlying fear that's out there or fear but like what if you know insecure becomes a global hit now on netflix when it didn't do it on hbo and i'm like you know who still owns insecure warner brothers discovery netflix is not buying the show if you want to make when they made more gilmore girls wbd got a or warner media at the time got a big check uh for four new episodes would Netflix got a hit that that was it what's wrong with that model Netflix has had these scenarios where where yeah. shows that already aired become then become like like manifest uh, that didn't have didn't work on NBC they canceled it you know yeah and you know who produces that not Netflix so if you want to get manifest season four so I'm not sure it produced the show but it wasn't a Netflix show the producer still gets that check this isn't like these are present day shows on HBO like the last of us is not last season is not going to Netflix. Like that's where the confusion can maybe come in where where's the next season of the thing I like. Insecure has been over for two, you know, almost two years. Baller has been done for, uh, I think, three years. So these shows are not coming back to HBO. So can we also talk about just this reversion to the old school TV yeah. infrastructure when we're talking about, you know, syndication, basically? So I moderated this panel earlier this week at the next TV conference right. where I was talking to uh, what's it called now? Amazon MGM Studios Distribution. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue. Now that MGM has been acquired by Amazon, uh, I was talking to their head, Chris Ottinger, in this keynote that uh, I was moderating with him. And he was telling me about uh, all of these Amazon original series that are now open to being licensed to third-party platforms, um, you know, internationally. And, and you know, of course, like on Avon and Fast Channels, which means you could possibly see the marvelous Mrs. Maisel on some other platform now and it just all seems to be coming full circle and he didn't seem too, too concerned that's literally his job right no that's a that's a good that's, thing for them yeah there's a much larger catalog now for for them to sell from yeah and they have a deep they've been making originals for 10 years you know what what, what i'm looking to all, all these things that are being pulled off of their services that aren't worth to disney plus or to the max the the continued uh payments to just have them up there right is that people is people setting up sort of uh the streaming equivalent of like the 99 cent vhs uh bin that they 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 had in every supermarket where someone says well all these john claude von nam movies are have been removed so we can we can rent we can license them for nothing and set up a service that costs 50 cents a month and people can have unlimited von Damme. and uh you know, there's a that there's ten thousand people out there who will want that. Like that, I I feel like we're setting up, we're 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 in the course of building a new infrastructure with all sorts of levels up and down the. And there's already Ludo and the free freebie ones that are, that that are already doing a lot of that. Yeah, um, it's returning to the old tactics, as you said. It's the old businesses is, is coming back, which was just you know for whatever reason everybody pivoted away from for five to seven years, and then. You know, there was this notion that just because Netflix does it, this is the way it's done. And everybody's coming around to the realization that that works for Netflix. That's great. It doesn't work for us. And we're going to go back and make the, you know, if Netflix wants to 
<laughs> sell their shows eventually, which is probably a four or five year thing down the road where they need another lever to pull once the password crackdown's done and going theatrical is done. And they did define growth as well. I guarantee you that will become a conversation at some point down the line of that company. Nothing, you know, the Bible, what is held as sacred, you know, can change when the bottom line changes, which is where these studios, namely Disney and WBD are at right now. They all need money. Like this is this. These are all moves that sure more more dollars in the door is always a great idea. But there's a lot of this going on right now in a very small amount of time where as I put out the newsletter today, you know, it's like. Cable bundles been melting. We know that, but advertising, if you, if either of you heard a word about the upfront, since we all sat through a week of huge presentations about how it's going or how much money's coming in the door, not a good sign, you know? So these guys have Q2 and Q3 earnings calls coming up and they better have money coming in the door to make up for whatever's going to be happening there. So um, different business models, all fine. Nothing, nothing wrong with any of it. As you said, Richard pointed out, it's been done since, you know, via the age of VHS, but this just the, the tiers are changing now. The 99 cent bin is now Avod, Richard. It's now Pluto. It's just they just changed the name to whatever, you know, whatever it used to be. So fun times we live in. But how about the movie theater? You guys going to see some R-rated comedy this weekend? Richard, are you in for some uh, Jennifer Lawrence or what? Yeah, you were all big on no hard feelings, right, Richard? Yeah. Yeah, it looked it looks hilarious. I early reviews I've read have not been that encouraging, but I I I am a supporter a big supporter of the uh, R-rated comedy uh, genre <laughs> returning. It's kind of stunning that a year ago, people were saying not not a, R-rated comedy has been dead for a decade plus now, but people were, a year ago, people were writing that comedy it was dead, that no reason to make a comedy at all. And now we have, I think, four R-rated comedy, No Hard Feelings, Strays, uh, Joyride, and Bottoms, uh, all major releases from studios this summer. So I think that's a great thing. I, I root for this genre to uh, succeed. So I will take the over on no hard feelings uh, sight unseen, even though I I'm, I'm betting my, I'm betting my favorite here. Not, not betting uh, with your heart, Richard. Yes, exactly. So I'll let you know, I'll throw this, you know, we're the two gen extras here to the millennial generation. Did you, was already comedy hold a, a dear place in your heart or uh, not so much as maybe for Remy and Richard? Yeah. I, well, it, it's like the, the Apatow era, right. Was yeah, very I big when true. I was yeah, growing out, true. like okay. super bad was a really big movie. Seminal moment in uh, millennial history. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. I laugh it, but it kind of, but the movie Richard and I, for Richard and I, it's, you know, maybe the Caddyshacks or the, you know, whatever the eighties already. Yeah, I was going to say, what, what are the R rated comedies that rate for you guys? Oh, Cause when I think my of DVDs it, it's right like... next to me right now, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> I think that says a lot DVDs go on. Yeah. I mean, the originals were, yeah, Animal House, Animal House, Caddyshack, and then they were killed off in, they were, well, they were killed off by John Hughes, essentially, uh, when, and PG rated comedies had about 15 years. And then, wasn't American Pie was the first? Yeah, that kind of in that mm-hmm. era. Yeah. Yep. Return of the. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, There's something, something about, Mary. about Mary, too, 98. Yep. Giant. And Dumb and Dumber, to an extent as well, was also in 94. So there were flashes of it. But yes, that was kind of the kickoff there in the late 90s again, for sure which led into the Apatow era in the mid mid 2000s. So and like anything else, Richard, you know, look, they have a boom. They make a bunch of them. A lot of them don't work and the quality goes down. <laughs> it's like it's very reminiscent of maybe perhaps some superhero movies we've been talking about uh, in the pop culture pantheon here this year. There was that, but I feel like there are a lot of bad reasons for, for this go. A lot of, a lot of bad, like corporate reasons of, mm. you know, 
comedies don't travel and they they don't play overseas which is true international is not as strong on those things for the most part um so but you know and there is a price range and this to the point of this one you know we have joyride coming up and we have this movie you know this movie costs 45 million dollars which for this at least to that that's before marketing and probably some other costs so uh, what's the price point for this stuff richard is probably something that is you know with something like cocaine bear which or comedy was you know 20 million and did very well and there are some other, and Joyride is probably more in that in that range. Uh, the Blackening, which just came out, which is horror comedy, that was a five million dollar comedy. So, you know, the price point does matter in the genre, I think. So, so what you're looking in the streaming world to distinguish yourself, distinguish the cinematic experience, and I, I feel like there are there are two things that that you can do in theaters that that just aren't as good at home. Uh, be scared and laugh. Yeah. with You want to be with other people. It's a bit different experience. Yeah. A comedy at home is not as much fun as it in, in theaters. Just work much better in uh, theater. So, And for Elemental and The Flash, if they can, if you, any optimism there for both of you or every kind of. Unlike The Flash, Elemental had an A cinema score. So there is that. Yeah. Gives you some hope that uh, it, it, it won't crash to earth completely on, on weekend too. So. And maybe this is just me being in a bubble. I just feel like the marketing for it hasn't been as penetrative as a lot of other Pixar movies hmm. before it. I don't, I don't know. How are you guys feeling about that? I just didn't understand it. Like, I literally could not even tell you what this movie is about. And I've the whole campaign. I'm like, uh, what's the hook here? And I mean, that was the big issue was communication of, you know, Lightyear had a, a few problems, but one was one of them as well was that, is this a Toy Story movie? Is this not? The ups of the world and the, you know, the Wallies have a pretty good, there's a lot going on in those films, but the one-liner is easy to get. Where on these two movies. The great Pixar's had a really simple core, like emotional problem that the, that the character was looking right. to solve. And you, you understood that like immediately uh, from, from looking at any, any part of the campaign. The, the the problem with Elemental is it's got like a bunch of emotional problems that are sort of <laughs> weave weave together. Again, I like the movie. I thought, I no, was, I'm I not saying it's I, not. I, it doesn't work. The A Cinema score speaks to that, Richard. Yeah, it, it's it's confusing. Like you know, it's it's an opposite. It's a track movie. It's an immigrant story. It's but she has to learn to control her temper. It's it's confusing. Yeah, we shall see if the word of mouth uh, rises the boat here in uh, weekend two. We will uh, see how it goes. You can, of course, find uh, all the answers on Monday in the Wake Up newsletter, my uh, box office roundup, uh, including Spider-Man, which is still going very strong and has uh, really become uh, not the surprise hit of the summer, but I don't think people will have these kind of numbers on it. We, <laughs> I think the three of us probably did not have this on our respective radars, admittedly, uh, back at the start of the summer season. So, But a number of us do have Mission Impossible on our list coming up, right? So. And that came on tracking this week at about 90 million to open. So that would be, you know, almost at least 40 plus percent higher than what the flash did. So uh, we shall see if that comes to fruition. But uh, again, you can subscribe to the Ankler at the for all this coverage and over at strike guys, get Elaine's daily uh, missives from the uh, world of strikes, which this week will be pretty active Elaine, I think so. Yeah. I mean, we are one week out from the end of the SAG negotiations. And you'll be back on the lines a bit this week before that, or. Yeah. So if you see me out there, say, Hey, then where do they find you? Oh, they can find me at Elaine at the angler.com. I've gotten a lot of reader mail over the last 24 hours, both about Taylor Sheridan. Okay. Mostly about Taylor Sheridan, (laughs) but also about other people's concerns, especially as financial hardships start to set in. So I'm always interested in hearing from you guys. Yep. And on Twitter, you are. At Elaine Lowe. So find Elaine there. And uh, that's it for this week. So thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time.